Our Father in heaven, dear Lord God, some of our rejoicing and happiness is maybe a little mitigated by the reality, Lord God, of the fact that that people gathering together for the same reason we are uh, really just suffer tremendously, Lord. And and uh, even today we hear a report of, of people in Sri Lanka, and I know this happens in other places in the world, uh, of people who were killed. Really a direct assault on their faith in Jesus. And I don't know much about like what kind of church it was or what whether what, how they believe this doctrine or that doctrine, but I know they, they got up and went to church this morning for the same reasons that we did. And Lord, my prayer is that you would comfort families and also, Lord God, that you would, as I know you already do, that you would just remember, Lord, your children everywhere, that you would fill us, Lord, with boldness to preach your word, fill us, Lord, with power and love to preach the gospel in this world and to live godly in Christ Jesus and to represent you. We pray for just comfort for all of your people, peace for all of your people, no shaking of faith for all of your people, Lord God, that all of your people in the world, Lord God, would worship you with gladness and that you would comfort those who are sorrowing, Lord God. We thank you for this time we have together here today. And as we read your word about this great event that occurred 2,000 years ago, we know that one of the blessings and one of the realities of Christ rising from the dead is that one day in the future, all of these types of things that we hear about will be no more. And Lord, all of your children who have faith in you will just be with you forever because death has been conquered because, Lord Jesus, you rose from the dead, showing your power over it and the very power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. And Lord, because you rose from the dead, you are also able to raise us up to eternal life. And we thank you for that, Lord God. And I pray that, Lord, everyone who is in the sound of my voice today, Lord God, would believe with all of their hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So here we are in John chapter 20. There are, of course, four accounts of the resurrection of Christ. And then in the Bible, and of course many other passages and references to it in other portions of the Bible. One of the really... One of the really unique things about Christ raising from the dead, rising from the dead, that perhaps you've not thought about, is that the actual event, Christ raising from the dead, is not recorded in any of the accounts. You, re- you, you have Jesus recorded being laid in the tomb, and then you have it recorded that people showed up at the tomb with the stone rolled away and Jesus wasn't there. And then you have a record of events that occurred in his life. You actually see him risen and talking to people. But the actual rising itself was something that apparently was just between he and his father. Because you don't read in any of the text, and then Jesus got up and walked out of the tomb. That conquering of death was something that apparently was only for the eyes of him and his father, which is really an amazing thing when you think about it. 
But then we get to verse 1 of chapter 20, and here's what it says. Listen to this. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary! She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, 
He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in His name. Is there a word that stands out from that chapter as being used an awful lot? Begins with a B. Yeah. Do you know what? Have you ever thought of this? But, but John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but John chapter 1 starts off by telling us in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Tells us all things were made through Him. Uh, without Him, nothing was made that was made. We're told that in Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not comprehend it. We're told that John the Baptist came to be a witness of the light. He wasn't that light, but he came to tell others about that light. But, but that this person called the Word, who was with God and was God, this person called the Word was the light of the world. It gives light to every man in the world. The chapter goes on in John chapter 1. It identifies him eventually by his name, Jesus, and his title, Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And then, once this grand prologue in the Gospel of John is finished, and you have introduced to you Jesus the Messiah, towards the end of that, you get this... Uh, you get this incredible statement that really is the establishment of the theme for the entire book, kind of right in the middle of it. It's in verse 12. And we're told, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe 
in His name. And right away in the beginning of the Gospel of John, as He's introducing Jesus to us, He throws that gauntlet down. And He says, Believe. Believe. The ones who receive Christ, they receive power to become God's children. How does that happen? When they put their faith in Him. Believe, believe. Listen, if the Gospel of John were not called the Gospel of John, maybe the title for the book could be Believe. I actually, years ago, went through, this happens to be the Bible I was reading at the time, uh, and, and I wrote, I didn't count them, but I, I wrote, I put a little B, a big capital B in the margin every time the Gospel of John says believe. And it seems that every turn of the page, John, the author of this Gospel, is imploring his readers, believe, 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 believe. And then you read and Christ's life goes by as you turn the pages. And you get about halfway through the book and then you get to the passage that we read last week which talks about Him coming into Jerusalem for the last time. And almost the entire second half of His Gospel is devoted to that last six days of Christ's life leading to ultimately His resurrection from the dead. And all throughout that, the reader is being implored, believe, believe, believe. And then when you get to this path, this chapter at the end, near the end of the story that we've read today, and you read about Christ risen from the dead, we're told that John, the disciple that Jesus loved, which presumably is John himself, not identifying himself by name, but, but, but describing himself that way, runs into the tomb. And it says when he saw, he believed. And then when Jesus appears to them in the house, it says that He goes straight to Thomas and tells him, believe, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And then you get to this, I love these verses at the end of John chapter 20 because like the narrative makes this pause and John the author just inserts these words in verse 30 of John chapter 20 that we just read after telling you the whole story, and he still has a little more to tell you in chapter 21. He's not totally done yet. But he reaches this point after going through this whole account of Christ's all the way from the beginning. It's one of two books in the Bible that starts with the words in the beginning, Genesis being the other. And after going all the way from the beginning, all the way through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, after the account of all of the miracles and all of the teachings and all of the amazing things that occurred in Christ's life, you get these words. Truly, Jesus did a whole bunch of other stuff in the presence of His disciples that I didn't write down. You know, at the end of chapter 21, He says, if I tried to write everything down, all the books of the world could not contain all of the wonderful things that Jesus said and did. Right? But he said there's a whole bunch of other stuff that Jesus did in the miracles and signs and wonders and teachings and just God glorifying and Christ exalting things that Jesus did. And, and, and they're not written in this book. But he said these are written. The things that I squeezed into this scroll. The things that I squeezed into this account of Christ's life. They're written. So that what? You might believe. 
believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then he tags this little bit on the end of it. And believing what? You may have life in his name. There's almost nothing else to say. I like to tell people that the Gospel of John is the first Gospel tract ever written in the history of the world. Think about that. It's the one book of the Bible that is written that begs us to believe. The whole theme of the Bible is to believe. You go all the way back to Abraham. And God tells Abraham, okay, you're going to have a son. (laughs) Abraham's a really old guy. You're going to have a son. You're not going to adopt anyone. Not going to be a servant in your house. You and Sarah are actually going to have a son. Abraham believes that. And then Isaac is born. And after Isaac is born, then God says, after some years go by, and the boy has grown up some, God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Ready? Take your son Isaac and take him over to the land of Moriah, which eventually became what is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. No coincidence there. And he said, take him over to Moriah, and I want you to make an altar, and I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. Abraham must have been stunned at that, at least for a moment. Then he and Isaac go. And he never tells Isaac exactly what's going to happen, it seems. But he takes Isaac there. When he reaches the point, he tells the other servants that went with him, wait here, we'll be back. Because he like trusted that God was going to do something here. right? And then they go, and he gets all the way to the point where he's got Isaac bound and laying on an altar and a blade in his hand and ready to sacrifice his own son. And God calls out at that moment, Abraham! Stops him. And the record is Abraham, listen, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And that becomes the theme, really, of the entire Bible. There's no Moses yet, there's no law yet, there's no Israel yet, there's no Jewish nation yet, there's no old covenant yet. There's no altar yet. There's no temple yet. There's nothing. There's just a guy who believed God. And the Bible tells him, Bible tells us that God counted him righteousness, counted him righteous because he believed. That becomes the pattern. That becomes the key ingredient of what the entire gospel that we know is about. Fast forward through the centuries. John the Baptist writes what he writes. Not John the Baptist, John the Apostle. John the Baptist showed up and announced that Jesus would be God's Lamb. John the Apostle eventually writes down this account of Christ's life, begging people to believe. After after that, the Apostle Paul comes along and he writes, I was going to read this to you later, but I'll just read it to you now. You can turn if you want, but you don't have to. If you want to just listen. In Romans chapter 3, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is what? The knowledge of sin. No justification by trying to obey the law. The law's purpose is to show us that we are sinful. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets being a reference to the Old Testament. Meaning that this idea that a person can't justify himself by keeping the law, but God justifies the person who believes is not really a new concept. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the Old Testament. The pl- Sometimes people will ask me, well, what about people who lived before Jesus lived? They were saved the same way we are, by believing God. And God credited them with righteousness when they believed. Right? So this righteousness of God apart from the law being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. He goes on to say there's no difference. Jew, Greek. Later in the Bible, Paul writes, uh, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, man, woman, slave, free. There is no difference. Through faith in Christ. We are justified by believing. The Bible is a book that calls us to believe. The Gospel of John is a book within the great book that calls us to believe. And maybe the capstone of what it is that we are called to believe is this event that we commemorate on this holiday today. As the story of Christ goes along, we studied and read on Friday night about how He sacrificed His life for us. But in the text that we have before us today comes the capstone, the key point of what we ought to believe. Paul put it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, listen, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I thought about that. I thought about the way that Paul wrote that. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I get that. And that, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead... And I thought to myself, why does he say the words in your heart? Why is it enough to just say, and you believe that God raised him from the dead? He says, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. He adds those words in your heart because I think in the, in the biblical literature, when you talk about in the heart, what you're talking about is the whole, the entirety of the inner man. Who you are in your soul, with all of your heart, with all of your soul. In other words, if you have faith, fully committed faith, fully devoted even within yourself, with all of your heart, that Jesus rose from the dead. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe with all of your heart that He is risen, just as He said, you are the recipient of the greatest gift that could ever, ever, ever be bestowed upon anyone else. You will be saved. Saved? What does saved mean? Saved 
conjures up the idea of, say, a fireman rescuing someone from a fire, someone rescuing someone from some tragedy or some hard thing that's going on. What are we saved from? We're saved from eternal judgment. Listen, God is holy and God is righteous. And what we deserve because of our sin is to be judged by Him and found guilty and condemned in our sins. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved from that by Him. You will have your sins washed away and you will have eternal life by believing. This book is crying out, believe, 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 believe. Many other things that aren't even written in the book that Jesus did. But I wrote these down that you may believe and by believing you may have life in His name. Through faith in Christ, your sins are washed away and you have the promise of everlasting life, eternal life, salvation from the, the certain future judgment of this entire world. A few points from the text in our limited time, obviously not able to go through every single word of John chapter 20. But there's sort of three major things that happen in this chapter. And there's many other things recorded in the Bible connected with Christ rising from the dead and that happened after Christ rose from the dead. But one, there's this encounter with Mary Magdalene. Then two, there is this encounter with all the disciples. And then thirdly, there's this encounter with Thomas. And just kind of a word about each of them. So we know that on the first day of the week, verse 1 says, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene's a very interesting character in the whole gospel story. We're told that Jesus cast demons out of her. And she was very devoted, a very devoted servant of Jesus. Other stories and fables and fictions have risen up over the years concerning Mary Magdalene, but the fact of the matter is nothing is known about her except what's written in the Bible. And we know that she was a very devoted servant of Jesus, and this is an evidence of that. That on the first day of the week, she goes to the tomb while it's still dark, and when she gets there, she sees that the stone is gone. We're told that when Jesus was buried, a great stone was rolled in front of the opening of the cave that he was buried in, and it was even sealed with Pontius, Pontius Pilate's own seal and guarded with a, uh, a detachment of Roman soldiers. Don't read anything about any of the Roman soldiers or anything like that here. You just get there and there's this opening in the cave and the stone's rolled away. So she gets there and... She sees that the stone's taken away, so her immediate reaction is to run and tell Peter and presumably John. She comes to them and tells them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've laid Him. So Peter and John run to the tomb. And John outruns Peter, and he gets there. And he looks inside. And uh, he looks in, and he sees the linen cloths lying there, but he doesn't go in. So Peter then arrives, and Peter goes right into the tomb. And he sees the linen cloth lying there. And then there's this issue in verse 7 of this handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And there's, you know, you've probably at some point in the last 10 years seen the email that floats around that says something about like the folded napkin kind of being like a table napkin and, and meaning that like uh, the master 
uh, was done eating, but he was still coming back to the table and it being connected with Jesus returning. I don't act, that's a great story, but I don't know that there's anything that is like substantively provable about any of that. So, but really, I think what it shows, if anything, what the fact that the table, that, not the napkin, but the thing that was around his head, the head shroud, the fact that that was actually neatly folded would indicate what? Nobody stole his body. Because presumably a thief would not take the time to do that, right? So, so Jesus rising from the dead was deliberate. That's the point. And so John records that in his gospel, right? And then we're told at that moment that John believes, right? For before this, they didn't understand the scripture like in Psalm 16, it talks about the Messiah not remaining dead and not allowing the Holy One to see corruption. They didn't understand that this would be a reference to the Messiah dying and then rising from the dead. They didn't get it yet. We certainly get it now, right? Praise the Lord for that. So Mary is outside the tomb because the disciples, Peter and John, they left and they went to their own homes. And Mary stays there. And then you get this interaction, this divine interaction. She's looking in there and sees two angels sitting there that apparently were not there when uh, Peter and John looked in because they said nothing of it. And they actually speak and say, Woman, why are you weeping? And she says to them, Because they've taken the Lord away and I don't know where they have laid Him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and she sees Jesus standing there. And it's an amazing story because somehow she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus, right? And she actually thinks, what? Oh, the gardener has come over to see what's going on. Well, it's not the gardener. It's the creator of everything that's in the garden and, and her herself, which is amazing, right? So supposing him to be the gardener, she's like, where did you take him? Tell me and I'll come and take him away. And then Jesus says to her, Jesus says to her before she recognizes him, Mary. And then it's like the light bulb goes on. Rabboni! Teacher, amazing. And then this statement of Jesus, don't cling to me. What does that mean? Some people misinterpret that. It's almost like, don't touch me. You know, like there's some special thing going on. You can't touch me because that's obviously not the case because he asked Thomas, touch me, you know, right? Don't cling to me, he says, because I haven't yet ascended to my father. Go, go tell my disciples that I'm going to ascend to my God, who's your God, and I'm going to ascend to my father who's your father, right? But the idea of don't cling to me, I think the idea is that Jesus is not done yet, right? In other words, don't hold on to me now. I'm not staying here. I'm leaving. Elsewhere in the scripture, Jesus actually said, if I go, good for you. Because if I go, who's going to come in my place? The Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of you. And you read on into the book of Acts, you actually see that happen, which is awesome. Continuing to happen today, by the way. So, what happens here in the story? Mary Magdalene goes and tells the disciples that she's seen the Lord and that the Lord said all these things. Then, the same day at evening, and this is my favorite part, and this happens twice in this story, while the doors were shut. John makes sure he points that out. They're afraid! They're afraid because the Jews in Jerusalem have already said, if anyone believes in Christ, you're out! Out of the synagogue. Just back in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, you have this blind man who gets healed. And they ask him again and again and again, who healed you? Who healed you? Who healed you? And he just said, a man named Jesus anointed my eyes with clay. I went and I washed and now I can see. And eventually the guy says to them what? Uh, 
you know, uh, do you want us to be his disciples too? And they get really, really mad at him. And they throw him out. Because we're told that anyone who put any sort of credence in faith in Christ was to be banished from their synagogue. And so these guys are hiding out. They're holed up in Jerusalem. And the doors are shut. And they're locked. And then Jesus appears in the midst. He doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't come into the door. It's just He's there in there. And the door is closed. The doors are locked. And then suddenly there's Jesus there. Incredible. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's why I say all the time, the Bible doesn't record the stone being rolled away and Jesus walking out. Jesus is not subject to rocks and stones and walls. They are subject to Him. Right? And so... So uh, here's Jesus appears in the midst and says, Peace to you, which blows their minds. There's almost a funny irony to it, right? Peace to you, he says. And he stood in the midst and he said that. And when this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then he says, As the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, what did he do? He breathed on them. And he breathed on them and he said an amazing statement that to some extent still baffles me and other preachers and and great Bible teachers and students have different views on this. But he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What is this idea of breathing on them and receiving the Holy Spirit? I think that in that moment, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive just just a sort of a special dispensation, if you will. I don't mean that word in the theological term, but just a, a special giving, a special touch of the Holy Spirit was given to them in that moment because Christ was going to leave and many days were going to pass before Pentecost when the Holy Spirit actually came in those flaming tongues of fire and sat on them. And in that moment, permanently indwelt all of them. And they began to speak with tongues. And they were filled with power. And they began to preach the gospel. Right before Jesus ascended, He said to them, go wait in Jerusalem and then you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Speaking of it as being future tense. But here, right here, He says that He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he kind of gives them a little picture of what their mission is. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I don't think there's anything special about that beyond what the mission of the gospel is. Because their mission was to go into all the earth and preach the gospel. And as they preached the gospel, if people believed their gospel message, their sins were forgiven. If people rejected their gospel message, their sins were retained. That's why it's important for you and I to what? Believe the gospel. It's another evidence in this gospel account of the importance of belief. Now, after that, we're told, sorry, I'm going fast through this, but after that, we're told that Thomas, whose nickname is the twin, I think it actually says Didymus, the word in some of the translations. He's called the twin, one of the twelve. He wasn't there. And then he makes this statement. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails 
and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hands into the side, I will not believe. Right? This same Thomas was the one who said a couple of interesting things, but one of them, right before Lazarus was raised from the dead, Thomas said, after Jesus said, I want to go now to Bethany because Lazarus is dead and this is all done for the glory of God. And they all said to him, Lord, the Jews want to kill you. Why do you want to go there now? And Jesus said, it's for the glory of God. And Thomas is the one who said, let's go with him that we may die together with him. Right? And then, of course, the great miracle of Lazarus rising from the dead, which is the, the perfect prequel to Christ entering Jerusalem for the last time and then his crucifixion, and now his resurrection. So not much time has passed from then until now. And so, verse 26, after eight days, note that, eight days go by. Eight days since Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see the prints and touch them myself. Jesus hadn't forgotten that. I love this part of the story. They're in again. Again, we're told that the doors are shut. Thomas is with them this time and again. Jesus simply stands in the midst. He appears and he says, peace to you. Then what does he do? Eight eight days have gone by since Thomas said this thing. Jesus appears in the midst and boom, he goes straight to Thomas. Straight to him and says, Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. And then he tells him what? Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas, the beautiful, humbled answer, my Lord and my God. An affirmation of Christ's divinity there, I believe. And then in verse 29, Jesus says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Who are those who have not seen and yet believed? Basically, everyone else, including us. Do you see where the story in its ultimate moment arrives? It arrives right where it began. As many as received Him, To them He gave the power to become the children of God. To those who believed in His name. And it ends here. You believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. As I mentioned, Paul put it like this. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The bottom line of all of this is simple as simple can get. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Do you believe? If you have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, He will wipe all of your sins away. You will be adopted as a child of God. You will become a joint heir, inheritor of His kingdom when He comes. He, God, by the 
person of the Holy Spirit will come into you. Jesus said, we will make our home in you. His Holy Spirit will come into you. You will pass from death to life, the Bible says. You will become an inheritor of all of the promises of God and all of the promises of His kingdom. You will be blessed with an eternity with Jesus. All eternity with the Lord, if you believe. You must humble yourself and acknowledge that you've sinned acknowledged you've broken His laws, acknowledged that you've lied and you've stolen and you've coveted and you've used the Lord's name in vain and you've dishonored your parents and, 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 and you know, you've just generally the course of your life as hard as you try. You know you're a sinner and you fall short. The Bible says that Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. To repent means to humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, and just give up on yourself and turn to God. Turn to the Lord. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that He died for your sins. Believe that He rose from the dead. And God will make you His child. Your sins will be forgiven. And you will have the promise and the assurance of everlasting life. That's why when Christ rose from the dead, you read, believe, believe, believe. The message of the resurrection of Christ is not something we see with our eyes, like Thomas. It's something that must be believed. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Christ Jesus who rose from the dead. Put your faith in Christ who paid for your sins, conquered death, and now invites you to believe in Him. If you do, you will receive the gift of eternal life. Let's all stand up together and sing this last hymn that we have, and then we'll close our service for today.